How do we care for one another? How do we help one another grow in Christ-likeness? And as we'll see, there are some circumstances unique to the contemporary church that have brought about this question that we need to look into. Really, why are we talking about this? Why do we have a lesson on discipleship with specific emphasis on the therapeutic nature of, our, of the culture in which we live in? Another way to ask that question, what's the context for this discussion in 2018 or where does the church find herself in the midst of, of culture and society as we strive to help each other do what we need to do in discipleship and counseling? While the root problems faced by individuals, by humanity, by us, they're not new by any stretch, there are contemporary challenges that arise. So same old problem, new challenges in, in how we deal with the problem. So I don't want anybody to hear me say that we're dealing with something new. At its root level, it's the same. It's always been there since Genesis 3. An example of this would be homosexuality. That's not new. If we read our Bibles, we know that. That's not a new issue in humanity. It's not a new sin. It's not a new take on how to express sin. But an example of a contemporary challenge for the church is in our day, in our culture, for example, in this country, we've had to think through how we even approach bylaws and statements of faith with regard to how society might view us as a church, as a non-for-profit, et cetera, because of the way that our culture is responding and reacting to homosexuality. So same sin, same issue, same problem, different contemporary challenge. Similarly here, same problems, hurting people. But the way that we've described hurting people has changed a little bit in society. Cause and responsibility have been looked at differently. There are different cures now, or supposed cures even, than there were when the Bible was written. There have been different ultimate goals that have been added to certain things that the church has held dear for a long time. And those are fairly recent, you know, within the last 60 years or so. Movements such as what we say sometimes integrationism slash Christian psychology movement that attempts to integrate the findings of scripture with the findings of secular humanistic psychotherapy thought, that type of thing. Putting those together and saying this is the way that the church proceeds, that's a new challenge. That's a contemporary challenge. That's why... We're looking at this. We don't have to look any further than the example of the example of depression. Symptoms of what we call depression today can be seen in the pages of Scripture. If you've read the Psalms, you've encountered despair, hurt, angst, sadness. Those issues are addressed in the canon of Scripture. If we survey church history, famously Martin Luther. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, just to name a few, are all recorded as wrestling with extended seasons of melancholy or a deep depression of spirit. So that's not new. The, the item of depression, by example, is not a new thing. That's not a new challenge for the church. What's new is, is the way that it's discussed or talked about. In some cases today, that, as an example, is treated more like a bodily illness than it would have been in church history. We are, have all seen the commercials on TV that describe medicine, that describe the impacts of what it feels like in those ways and in those terms, and they educate us about what medicines are available to us. Antidepressants are one of the most prescribed drugs in America. And so that's new. That's a new thing. We find ourselves in the midst of that culture and in the midst of those challenges as a church. And that's where this phrase comes from. It's not a churchy phrase. Therapeutic culture or an over-psychologized society are things that even the secular world is looking at and saying, yes, that's true about where we are today. The fact that some of the leading prescribed drugs are antidepressants, just as an example, bear that out. And my guess is many of you have experienced this firsthand in family, maybe yourself. I have. I've had family members, multiple family members, grandfather who recently passed away, were prescribed large quantities of anti-anxiety medicine and other type things like this that, that had a drastic impact. I'll never forget my wife and I, she delivered our first child, Kate, so it would have been five years ago, five and a half years ago. And I was in the hospital room and I was holding Kate and my wife's doctor walked in and, and looked at me and, and I remember her saying something kind of awkward like, oh, that, that's... Something like, that baby is very becoming, like it's very becoming, just some weird compliment like, oh, that baby suits you. And I was just like, okay. And 
she immediately went from there to, and she said, now look, and she looked at me. She said, this is for you, not for her. And she said, if your wife cries more than, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was small. My gut reaction was, I mean, that sounds really normal. <laughs> like, she, and she said, if that happens, and she was dead serious, she said, you bring her in because we will give her something that will take care of that. That's your responsibility. Now, that could have been wise counsel in, in certain cases. I'm not, I'm just saying we all have encountered this, okay? We've encountered it. That one has been blazoned on my mind because that was one of my first entries into the world of parenting, day two. Okay, what, what? I remember looking at Holly right after she walked out the door like, okay, I, I wasn't quite prepared for this and what she just said. So that's the society we're in. That's why we're looking at this issue. And we really wanna ask the question this morning, how can we improve as disciples and disciplers in the midst of our therapeutic culture? That's the question today. This isn't this sort of high-level, hyper-technical, I'm not a doctor, obviously, you all know that, technical explanation of the issues we face. We wanna think about this as a, as a family matter, as an issue for our church, as an issue for how we think as brothers and sisters with the people that we're sitting next to. And all of this needs to be couched under everything we've been talking about through this series. This isn't kind of like an isolated one-off. This is about how you do discipleship and how you do counseling. So we want, I want that to be in the back of your mind throughout this lesson. That's why we say last week's builds into this. But we are gonna devote time to some specific matters related to this. Really, there are kind of two fronts in terms of what we look at and how we discuss the issues of psychoactive drugs or psychotropic drugs and the church. And really one is on the information side and that is, that's just simply information regarding medical science, medical theory behind those things. And then more importantly is the worldview side of things. That is the theology that we need to possess to make wise decisions in these areas and care for one another in areas when there are competing worldviews at play. So kind of outlined it in a paratypal form, but you'll see as we go through here why, and we're gonna spend most of our time on number two, which is be able to discern threats to a biblical worldview. But I think it's important that the first one, be informed. How can we improve as disciples and disciplers in the midst of a therapeutic culture? Number one, we need to be informed. What is the information, what is the issue that we're facing? Or what I should say, what are the issues behind the issues? So just a bit of a survey. When I say psychoactive or psychotropic drugs, I'm talking about those medicines that are designed to enter the bloodstream and cause changes in mood, thoughts, emotions, and behavior. There are many medicines that can do that that aren't necessarily classified under that goal. I mean, just one, if you're a parent, maybe you'll laugh with me, maybe not, but Benadryl. Uh, I remember as a kid taking Benadryl. I remember as a teenager taking it one time. I went with my parents to the movies. I had a bad allergy attack. They gave me a Benadryl, and I mean, I was like a, a zombie. I, it was my, my first memory, at least, of taking it. it. It immediately almost knocked me out. I mean, I could barely stay awake, stay alert. I was falling asleep during the movie. Uh, it, it has that impact. But psychoactive drugs in particular, when I say that today, I mean those that are specifically designed to have that impact. That's their purpose. This, again, what I'm about to read isn't necessarily just a church perspective. There are no blood tests, x-rays, or a physical exam that is given to verify a diagnosis often when, when most of these drugs in this class are given. Typically, the, the process is to go on the history and the criteria found in the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or what's called, short, the DSM. So doctors, and I, I believe the doctors in our congregation would verify this as well, doctors that I've read that talk about these issues say, look, we're, we're not scientific whether you're a Christian or not. You're not able to measure neurotransmitter levels, which is typically what these drugs are at least intended to interact with. So effects aren't measured in the same way as other, as other issues or other illnesses. So if we use hyperthyroidism or diabetes or something like that, let's say with diabetes you measure directly a high amount of glucose in the bloodstream and then you make a, a treatment recommendation for that. That's not how it works with neurotransmitters. 
these, these medicines are given, they treat symptoms, and they work. Like, please don't hear me saying anything about that on the front end. They do things to us. There's no question about that. But they're given, symptoms are, are, are observed, medicine is given, then there's a reaction or, or an observation to that, and then the pathology is then inferred. In other words, it works backwards. So, okay, the medicine had this impact, so maybe this was the problem at the back end. So that's different than typical, where you could draw blood, put it in a test, take it out, say, okay, this is a problem. So there's a difference there. That's information, be informed. That's not just a weird fundamentalist theological perspective, okay? You can find non-Christian doctors that will say, I believe what I just said. I read an interesting article this week from the New York Times called The Science and History of Treating Depression. And that article details differences in scientific view and medical view and medical science about how these things work. There's debate within the medical community about this. There's debate within the psychological community. There's debate within the scientific community about the results, about the testing, about the impact. So just being informed, what I mean by that is, this is an issue, it's a thing. And so we need to at least be informed. That doesn't mean be experts, okay? But it means be informed about the background behind these things that are taken as certainties in our society today. If there is dispute amongst experts, and there is, then that should at least inform the church about how we respond to these things. It doesn't mean that there's not data on both sides of the argument, I'm not suggesting that. I'm simply saying that it's unsettled, and that if disagreement exists within the scientific witness, then there should be some pause in the church community. We should at least seek to understand more than just imbibing what our our culture is throwing at us. That is different than saying this is the classic church versus science debate. The idea that psychoactive drugs are the big bad wolf to the church's little red riding hood and you know that's what this is all about. That's not the point, okay? There's debate within the scientific community and the issue on the church side is not church versus science. It's thinking theologically, worldview, presentation for how we understand what's going on outside. So not experts, but be informed. How can you do that? There are myriad resources today, multiple resources, um, ministries such as the funny named ACBC, the American Society of Biblical Counselors, or American, what, coalition or something like that of biblical counselors, ACBC, it's easy to remember, uh, CCCF, and others, journal articles, all kinds of things dealing with this if you want to press in and be informed. All right, secondly, and where we'll spend most of our time this morning, be able to discern threats to a biblical worldview. This is the big issue. Be able to discern threats to a biblical worldview. The aim is to think biblically, to have a grid that is biblical through which you see and filter the world around us, what we're responding to, the problems that we face, the issues that we are encountered with. That's the aim. It's not a simple case study issue. Like this lesson is not, okay, here's an example over here and it's this extreme and in this case you do this or over here, maybe it's less extreme, and in this case, you do this. You know, it's not a, a, a troubleshooting sort of flow chart. The idea is a worldview. You thinking biblically and then seeing theologically and biblically everything that's around. So we're not, today, we're not gonna just say, okay, so in this case, this extreme case, here's what happens, and here's when medicine's a good idea, here's when it's not a good idea, here's when, like that. The issue is behind that. How do you and I think biblically? about these issues, building into a biblical worldview, how we see, interpret, and respond to the world around us. So even though all of us, myself included, we want answers to these questions, we want answers to the extreme examples that, that we have in mind, you first have to have an interpretive grid that helps you address the issue behind the issue. And that's really what last week was for. We're gonna talk a little bit about that again this morning, but last week was the interpretive grid, the foundational principles that help you think and help me think, are we processing this in a distinctly biblical fashion. So our response to challenging situations, competing ideologies, I, I think we can summarize it with three questions. What is your identification of the ultimate problem? What is your ultimate aim in addressing the problem? And what is your ultimate solution to the ultimate problem? So all of our examples, we can kind of filter through there. And we wanna recognize that different answers to those questions or different questions will change the way we think about our problems and how we get better and how we help others get better. So when we think about counseling and discipleship, 
to go away from this grid to ask different foundational questions or to not make, have different answers to these will impact how we respond to others and how we care for others. So, for example, is the ultimate problem sin for which we are responsible? Or is it something outside of our control for which we're not responsible? Is the ultimate aim growth in Christ in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering? Or is the ultimate aim only to feel better? Is the ultimate solution gospel truth that addresses the soul or is it behavior modification or helpful medicine that may make you feel better but leaves the heart issue untouched? And honestly, when we press into this, pathology doesn't change these questions. If I have diabetes or hyperthyroidism and I sin against my wife, even because my body, there's a link between the way that I feel, my mood, and how I'm responding to a certain stimulus because of an illness, and I can take a medicine to correct that illness, I still would have to repent for an angry outburst. I could not point to my illness and say, no, that was the, that was the diabetes talking, I'm sorry. So blame it on the diabetes. I, there would be a connection, I'm not denying that, but still the heart issue is the, is the main issue. So even when there's pathology like that, we still have to think about things in these questions. What is the ultimate problem? What is the ultimate aim? Is it Christ-likeness or is it just the way that we feel in a given moment? What is the ultimate solution? Is it gospel truth? Is it biblical truth that talks about how we change? Or is it something that's, that comes after that? A behavior modification. Or, or again, medicine that may make us feel better, but leaves the heart issues untouched. So when should modern psychological approaches to problems be seen as a threat to a biblical worldview? When should we see some of the modern approaches in our day as a threat to a biblical worldview? And that's where we want to go next. And what I've done is kind of given the when they, just circle, the, the they's is not a monster outside of these church walls or a bad guy. The they is approaches, okay? So the antecedent for they in these statements are approaches, okay? When they, not people, when they being the approaches that are taken, do these things, we should see them as a threat to a biblical worldview. And I've tried to then give presuppositions from the scriptures that underlie why we would respond that way and say these are at odds with a biblical worldview. One, when they claim, when the approach claims to provide something perceived as lacking in the scriptures. When they claim to provide something perceived as lacking in the scriptures. I don't mean help for math homework when there's no math instruction in the scriptures, I mean something that's stated as this is a lack that you need for your essential existence and the scriptures don't provide it. This would be like a statement that says scriptures give us less than we need to know to understand why people have the characteristics they do. Or scriptures give us less than we need to know to help move beyond those characteristics in life. That's a problem. That's saying that scripture lacks something that is essential for our thriving, for our existence, for our flourishing, for our living as human beings. The Bible is good, or another statement, the Bible is good for sort of introductory thoughts into how we might help somebody, but it's not sufficiently comprehensive to give substantial assistance to serious soul problems. Those are examples of, of a worldview that says, Scripture doesn't have something that you need. That's a problem. That is an undermining of the sufficiency of Scripture. And as we said last week, Scripture is unconditionally sufficient in matters of life and godliness. And so any statements or any approach to problems that says we have to move in here because Scripture doesn't address the most important issues, that's a problem. That is a worldview that is at odds with a biblical worldview. The presupposition that's behind this is the idea that God's word is absolutely authoritative for explaining people and situations. God's word is absolutely authoritative for explaining people and situations. Here's what I mean by that, authoritative. If God's word says we do something because of this reason and another approach says, no, no, you do it because of this reason over here, God's word is authoritative. 
This can't be true if it undermines this, and this is authoritative scripture. That's so important. God's word is absolutely authoritative, and it speaks with unconditional sufficiency to the, and again, ultimate problems. I'm not suggesting that scripture is sufficient to tell a doctor how to do open heart surgery. That's not even the discussion of what sufficiency is. I'm saying scripture is comprehensively sufficient in what it says it provides, which is everything we need for life and godliness, which is our ultimate need, which means it will address the ultimate problems that we have and face, according to scripture. So only scripture can effectively instruct believers in how to glorify God, which is your chief end. That's it. Only God's word can tell you and me who are broken, yet redeemed, and being changed into Christ's likeness how to glorify God effectively. That's what it means that scripture is authoritative. And any claim that any approach says, no, no, you need this in that area or that category because there's a lack, that's a problem. That should cause us to, to put our guard up. Another one, any approach that shifts responsibility away from the individual. Any approach to problems, ultimate problems in life that we face that takes our individual responsibility out of the equation is a threat to a biblical worldview. That is, we shift responsibility away onto other causal factors. Sometimes therapeutic language is used to reassign responsibility for sin issues. God's word does not permit us to reassign responsibility for sin issues. That's a worldview battle right there. Individual responsibility can't be shifted Sin that's purported to be a result uh, of anything that isn't a heart condition. God's word tells us it's out of the heart that evil proceeds and that every human being bears that same plight, thanks to Adam and Eve. To say anything is a cause for that sin that eliminates responsibility for the person involved is an attack. Physical illness can affect behavior. There's no doubt about that but it can't be the root cause of sin. To say that physical behavior is the root cause or a physical illness is the root cause for sin or the ultimate issue for sin is to take responsibility off the one that God says is responsible for sin, which is the individual. So anything that shifts that responsibility. All men and women are responsible to God for their moral actions. That's a presupposition. Influences matter, but are not ultimately causal. Sinful desires, thoughts, and feelings lead to sinful actions, and all of these spring forth from a sinful heart. That's a theological worldview. David Pallison, I'm going to read an extended quote from him. It's helpful. He says this, No doubt the strengths and weaknesses of our bodies matter. God has made each of us to live as physically embodied creatures, no doubt the vast host of environmental influences for good or bad matter. God has placed each one of us to live as a situationally embedded creature. He says he's thankful that research has sought to trace all kinds of significant variables that influence us as thinking, feeling, moral beings and that those influences vary from person to person. They tempt us to turn to the dark side or they encourage us to live in light of the faith working through love. These influences define our opportunities and limitations, our abilities and disabilities, our sorrows and felicities within which we either flourish or perish before the one true and living God. Then these are the really important portion of this quote. These influences describe the God-arranged stage on which you and I make the choices that define our lives and character. All of us should want to know about factors that exert influence, but research into these factors cannot finally account for the decisive person. Read that again. But research into these factors cannot finally account for the decisive person. Though each of us lives within a world of influences, our obedience or disobedience to God's two great commandments is not determined by those influences. It is out of the heart that both wisdom and folly spring. And he says later in that similar article, the final cause of you is not something that happens to you. The final reason for your decision-making, your actions, your behavior that is sin is not outside of you. It's you. It's me. We sin. 
Our, it flows out of our hearts. That's our ultimate problem. Any worldview that moves responsibility away from that is in opposition to a biblical worldview. Number three, when approaches offer outer man solutions as the cure for inner man problems. Outer man solutions as the cure, not as a help, but as the cure for inner man problems. This is the typical dichotomy that we really need to own, and that is the difference between symptom relief and heart change. There is a massive difference between symptom relief and heart change. Nobody would deny that there are many things available to us that provide symptom relief. But those things cannot be seen as a cure for the ultimate problem. Those are outer man realities. That's the dichotomy I'm making that Paul says, look, we're anthropologically, we're a complex unity. What do I mean by that? I mean, you're not divided up. You're not sitting out there as sort of embodied spirits and I only care about the spirit and your body is meaningless. If we're gonna love and care for one another, we need to care for each other's body as well, their needs, physical needs. That's what I mean when we say we're a complex unity. The Bible pictures us as whole persons, body and soul, material and immaterial. But that said, there's a theological distinction made in the scriptures. The apostle Paul makes it in 2 Corinthians chapter four and five, when he says that the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed. Because the wages of sin is death, our bodies right now aren't being sanctified. Our inner man is being changed to the likeness of Christ. All of us will be redeemed one day. We're going to have bodies for all eternity. So that's important. However, right now, your outer man is decaying. That's what scripture says. So to offer an outer man solution may be good, it may be helpful, it may make us feel better, but it cannot be substituted for an inner man cure. Symptom relief versus heart change, two massively different things when we talk about complex issues that involve whether somebody's gonna seek medical help for a problem that they have. We said this last week, medications don't solve the sin problem. They can't. No medicine can solve sin in the heart, none. They can make us feel better. They can treat symptoms. They can give us relief, but they can't cure our sin problem. So any worldview that says we're gonna treat the outer man as the ultimate cure for what the Bible would say is an inner man issue is a competing worldview. That is a threat. Dr. Michael Emlett says this, improving someone's symptoms of anxiety, for example, doesn't necessarily address the underlying fears and desires that may be present. Might one feel better? Yes. Again, this may not be a bad thing in itself, but does the person retain the zeal to address the revealed heart inclinations now that those propensities are less visible in day-to-day -day life? He says, I have had counselees who after improvement in their symptoms because of medicine, assume no further work is required. That's dangerous. That's a competing worldview that is dangerous. If that describes you, please talk to a brother or sister in Christ about what troubles you. Medicine cannot cure the inner man issue. And if we take medicine and it helps us feel better in our outer man and we think that because of that there's no longer a heart issue to be worked on, that's dangerous. That's dangerous for our soul. It is a dangerous place to be to say, I saw somebody, they gave me this medicine and it fixes my issue, what a relief. I can't, I'm so glad that that's solved. If the issue could be defined in biblical terms as a sin issue sort of saying what a relief that's been cured and moving on somewhere else is a problem. Symptom relief has to be distinguished from the heart change that still hasn't taken place. So we have to be able to discern and work that even when something's given, there's still an issue at hand. If I have a thorn in my foot and I'm given heavy anesthetic to not feel the thorn anymore, symptoms, pain are gone, thorn's still there. 
Just because I don't feel it doesn't mean there's not an issue that still has to be worked on. If I were to continue walking and living with this thorn in my foot, eventually it's going to work itself out. It's going to be a problem for the rest of my days, even though I don't feel it. We, we have to be careful. If symptom relief is then given as the cure for a soul issue, an inner man issue, we have to, we'll be led astray, we'll circumvent God's purposes for change. We won't change, in other words, in that area. And that should, that should scare Christians. No man-made cure, none, or methodology can bring a person from unholy to holy or from unrighteous to righteous. Not one. It's important that we remember that because we live in a day where there are a lot of cures for a lot of things. We've been very blessed with a whole lot of medical advances that we all benefit from. But no man-made solution will make you more holy. So what's the presupposition behind this? For the Christian, inner man change precedes outer man change. The work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's children involves inner dispositions and motives of the mind, heart, conscience. Spiritual problems must be treated with spiritual care. Read the fruit of the Spirit. That's what God says is being produced in your life by the Holy Spirit. If in those areas we're, we're taking something man-made to try to accomplish those fruit, then we, we've missed it. We're focusing on the outer man when God's work is on the inner man. Another, number four, approach that we should be cautious about. When they ignore the hope-giving realities essential to Christian identity. When they ignore the hope-giving realities essential to Christian identity. Look, I was reading Colossians this week and came across the statement that we've all read probably many times or heard read in Colossians 1. 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Being rescued, transferred, redeemed, those aren't just things we say. Those are incredible spiritual realities for the Christian. Any approach that negates those as if you haven't been transferred, as if you aren't in a new, with a new heart, with a new disposition that's been supernaturally regenerated, we're misapplying what God says his resources are for our new identity. We, we ignore those hope-giving realities if we try to treat things as if we have an ultimate solution that's outside of those identity markers. In other words, transformation is in a different realm than what is going to be treated with medicine or secular therapy. Romans 6, you're no longer a slave. You've been freed. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Those realities are what give us hope, but are positional realities as well that God says are spiritual certainties for his children. Romans 6 actually says, as hard as it is for us to accept sometimes, you don't have to sin anymore. You've been freed from that slavery so that you can be a slave to righteousness. If we subscribe to a method of change that says without this, you're, you're done. You're gonna be a slave unless you have this therapy, this behavior modification, this medicine, then, you're, then we're, we're denying these hope-filled realities about Christians. So presupposition here, true Christians have been regenerated and redeemed from bondage to sin so that they are free to pursue conformity to God's will. We believe that. Often in practice, it's easy to forget or to cloudy over, cloud over that. Every believer has been given every provision necessary to increasingly resemble Jesus Christ in your life. And if we seek that type of change in a resource that's outside of what Christ says we already have in him, then we're ignoring the hope-giving realities that are essential for what it means to be a Christian. Lastly, another example. There may be more. When they approach, when, when any approaches looks at suffering as independent from the good purposes of God. A worldview that looks at suffering as independent of the good purposes of God is at odds with a biblical worldview. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, James 1, and 2, James 1, verse 2 and verse 12, Romans 5, 3 through 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the whole book of Job, we could go on. 
God says in his word that while suffering is a result of the fall and that suffering is a part of living in a fallen world, that God is sovereign over our suffering and that he uses our suffering to mature us and to refine his children. And so any worldview approach that would cause us to look at suffering in and of itself as something that's outside the purposes of God, that we're to get out of as fast as possible, that has no redeeming value, is a worldview that is at odds with Scripture. I'm not saying those verses are, are, are easy to accept. But they are very easy to understand because Paul and the writers of Scripture go right at it and say, you're in a fiery trial right now, First Peter, and God is using that to refine you and prove your faith. And it's very difficult to accept that we're in the middle of struggle and we're in the middle of trial. But that's what they say. Could you repeat those verses? Sure. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. James chapter 1, verses 2, and also verse 12. Really, you can just read 2 through 12, James 1. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, Paul in that text describes that because God has brought suffering into his life, he's better equipped to minister to others that are suffering, and he thanks God for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, that's the thorn in the flesh passage where we see Paul pleading with God to remove an infirmity and God saying, this is serving my purposes in making you more like Christ. The presupposition for that is that God uses suffering to refine and mature his children. Any approach to suffering that sees it as independent from the good, good purposes of God, God's care for his children and sanctifying work is at odds with a biblical worldview. So, be informed, be able to discern threats, and we can come back and talk about these in just a moment. Number three, be wise in extending care for one another. Be wise in extending care for one another. Never, ever, ever, ever instruct someone to stop taking their medicine. And if you're not their doctor, that's unwise. That's a doctor's decision. They need a doctor's help. If I were interacting with someone who was, had used or was using psychoactive medicine to help them with a problem they were struggling with and through the course of our interaction, they expressed a desire to, to not take that anymore or not take that as much, my counsel to them would be, okay, we need to talk to your doctor. That's so important. No matter what we think in the end about the medicines, they do things to our bodies. And we need skilled, trained professionals that understand what they do to help us or else really bad things could happen. So wise care for others and for one another in this church means don't ever instruct somebody to stop taking their medicine. Secondly, I think part of wisdom is don't see medicine as the main issue in this topic to be addressed. That would sort of deny the very worldview things we just said. We need to be after heart issues we need to be concerned with heart issues, the ultimate problems, ultimate solutions, ultimate aim. Sin, the ultimate aim, Christ-likeness, the ultimate solution, gospel truth, biblical counsel. That's the focus. I think wise counsel doesn't ignore the circumstances that are going on in our lives. If I'm with a friend and I had recently been diagnosed with something that I sought care for and was taking a medicine that was in one of these categories, that should come up in, in conversation with my friend who's seeking to care for me. But I would say the wisdom wouldn't be that that becomes the main issue of interaction and counsel. We still need to be about heart issues, the issue behind that. Another way to be wise, don't argue or wrangle about cause of the problem being treated. Focus on spiritual realities. Again, discipleship needs to be focused on what really matters, the heart issues. Yes, everything is a part of the equation, but the heart issue is what we need to focus on. And just in case we didn't hear it the first time, don't play doctor. 
Wisdom means don't play doctor. It's very important. Lastly, be willing to bear deep, heavy burdens for others. Be willing to bear deep, heavy burdens for others. Our foundational theology doesn't change in the midst of really, really hard, deep-seated, challenging circumstances. When we talk about these issues, so often our minds jump to the extreme cases. Oh yeah, well that's great in our church, but if you had somebody who was struggling in this particular area, I bet you wouldn't read your list of you know, presuppositions. That sort of mentality. That's not true. Your theology doesn't change, but it doesn't mean that the issues itself aren't as deep and challenging and difficult as they seem. But to care for one another, we need to be willing to bear deep, difficult burdens. And as burden bearers, we need to be willing, as we said last week, to seek strength in Christ and see him. If he's called us to discipleship, then he will give us the strength and the wisdom that we need to do that effectively. One example of this, sometimes we sit and we think, or maybe you've had experience with a very deep, difficult challenge, and you're saying, none of what you said applies to what I'm going through. I want to recommend a book. It's called Counseling the Hard Cases. Edited by Stuart Scott and Heath Lambert, John MacArthur wrote the foreword. Counseling the Hard Cases, why this book? Because this book goes at very, very difficult matters that are often in our minds as the example on the extreme end of things and applies the theology that we've been looking at to those situations. And you can see, how does this flesh out in real life situations? This is a resource in helping us bear deep-seated, difficult burdens for one another. It's also a resource that sort of says we can't hide behind this example that's so extreme and so challenging and say, no, 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 theology doesn't apply over here, it's too extreme. The the men behind this book have sought to kind of go at that and say, no, no, we need to, let's put our theology to the test. Let's put God's word into practice in what even the world would say are very challenging situations. So counseling the hard case is a helpful resource. If, If you're sitting here thinking, that's great, this theology is great in a vacuum, but you don't understand these examples over here, I would encourage you to be willing to pick up something like this. Challenge your thinking in these areas by looking at something such as that. When we think about being willing to bear deep, heavy burdens, we need to be reminded that there's not a special class of problems. Sometimes that's hard for us to accept because our world has said that there is. I believe that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 is at the head of your handout is a presupposition that says things can be extremely difficult, but it's never treated as a special class outside the pages of Scripture and God's provisions. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it perseverance and endurance. That's what God's promised for his children. I think this helps us motivate us to bear burdens for one another and not hear something that's drastic or extreme and sort of say, okay, that's in, it, that's, that's in a category of its own outside the pages of my Bible and I can't help or bear that burden. I think that's one verse that says, no, we can. And God's enabled the individual to endure it and he's enabled his people to come alongside and bear those burdens. We have 10 minutes for questions. I thought my notes would take me through the whole time and we wouldn't have time for this. I'm just kidding. It says in your notes Q&A so you can hold me accountable. Questions? Chuck. It depends on your definition of impact. Do I think that a, medic, that a mental illness would make it to where somebody could not obey scripture, could not walk after the Lord as a believer? Like it'd be that severe to where they couldn't be sanctified without? Yeah, I, I would say that certainly could make it difficult, but I believe scripture would say it, we can't say that it couldn't happen or that it's too much. So my answer in one sense is no. I don't think we could look at any class of mental illness or mental condition and say all that God has said about his children, what they're becoming and how they become that doesn't apply in this case. I would would say no, we can't go there. 
I would say that mental illness has an impact on our sanctification and on that individual sanctification, absolutely. Just as our life circumstances, whatever they may be, impact in various ways how we grow in Christ-likeness. Depends. Depends on what their reaction was. I couldn't tell you every circumstance during their time, and I can't give a blanket statement that says the act of being melancholy was sin. I wouldn't say that from, from up here by any means. I'm sure there were sinful moments, doubting Christ, doubting God's goodness. Those things are sin. In, uh, in what way? Yeah, I think there's a whole host of things that affect us and make us sad, and, and some can last for a very long time. So there is no class of, I think we wanna be very careful about saying any sort of, there's a class of sin called you know, being downcast. Uh, the motivation behind it, how we're thinking about God, how we're responding to the trial, those are where the rubber meets the road in terms of what the Lord expects of us as his children. But I'm, I'm staying away from any sort of just blanket statement that would say, no, that's, you know, those men, when they were downcast, automatically sin. I don't need to know the circumstances. I don't need to know what they were thinking, how they were fighting through that. I would not say that. Ryan. Yeah, the question is, is there a difference between being despondent and being clinically depressed? If there's a blood test or pathology test that's taken that says depression equals this deficit, then I would be more likely to say yes. I think we just wanna err on the side of using biblical language. I mean, I, I don't have the, a problem using the language of depression. I wouldn't make a distinction between a medical diagnosis unless there was a pathology with it, like making a diagnosis about hyperthyroidism or something like that, and biblical language for being downcast, despondent, suffering, despairing, those type of things. I don't know if that makes sense. It, if the diagnosis for the medical issue, all the symptoms are issues that scripture says are symptoms of the human condition that need to be addressed by Christ, then I'm not gonna accept the medical diagnosis as something separate from what this says I need to deal with. Does that make sense? Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, and it depends on so many things. I would imagine, if I use myself as an example, uh, Aaron and Adam know me pretty well. It, I think if there was a drastic change in, in my demeanor in the way that I responded to the various things of life that they perceived and they noticed something, you know, that was obvious, fairly obvious on the surface, you know, it was having physiological impact and other things. My guess is that in care for me, they would say, what's going on? And then it wouldn't take long for them to say, if I was describing physiological things, to say, have you had a physical? Have you gone to the doctor? Like, I don't think the theology here would make him automatically jump over the fact that I look awful and I'm dragging in and, and they're looking at me saying, hey, you know, I don't care how you feel. Tell me about your heart. I, they wouldn't do that. I don't think we should do that. So I don't want to misunderstand when we say the ultimate issue. But I also think that in the course of that interaction that they would seek to want to know how am I thinking about the situation? How am I processing whatever the trial is? And, and then they would want to address the heart issue as the issue behind whatever it was I was facing, whether it was turned out to be I had an illness uh, that was clearly affecting the way that I felt and acted and behaved, they would want to know, are you responding to the trial in a godly manner? 
or maybe the issue itself is more tightly connected to a heart issue. But it's just circumstances would take, just asking good questions. And we're gonna, one of the things, this isn't our only shot at this. So the next two weeks we're talking about sanctification and then we're talking for three weeks about how to be better caretakers, better brothers and sisters in Christ for one another, which will include how do you ask good questions? How do you give hope? How do you, how do you help somebody focus on the Lord? How do you get to the heart issue questions? But um, I think care would require not just jumping over all the circumstances and diving in and saying, okay, what, you know, we don't want to be Job's counselors, in other words. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what the circumstances are. I don't care about your loss. You sinned. Tell me your problem in your heart. That would be uncaring and unwise. God condemned that in Job. It's just a matter of getting to the ultimate issue and not leaving it at the, at the outer man. Does that make sense? Gary. My understanding would be there were scientists that would say it has been. There are also scientists outside the church that would say it hasn't. And so I think that the way we would respond to that is simply being aware that within the medical community, within the scientific community, within whatever psychiatric, psychological community, that there's debate. The question is, is it my understanding that the scientific evidence, whether it's seen as substantiated or not for chemical imbalance, is ultimately unsubstantiated? And so the response was, I, I think there are scientists that, that know more about that than me that would say, no, it has been substantiated. But I also think that there would be scientists that would say it hasn't. And so it's an unresolved issue. Uh, it is debated in the scientific medical communities. Um, research is still being done. They're questioning earlier research. That I, I mean, I was reading a little bit about it. Like I said, there was a New York Times article. This isn't like something that you can read, that you're only reading about in like the the hyper fundamental kind of corner of the internet that just tells every, everybody what's wrong with the world. Like this is New York Times scientific article saying, hey, this is unresolved. Here's science that says something. Here's science that says something. Scientists, doctors, otherwise are, are wrestling back and forth. So it is absolutely safe to say it's unresolved, yes. Yeah. So the question is if, if, if you were, you had been diagnosed with something that allowed you to take something to make you feel better and function at a certain level, and then that was reduced and your functionality at that level also reduced, but it allowed you to better get at the heart issues going on, how would we respond to that? Is that right? Yeah, I think that the, that the perspective on that, whether there's an issue with medicine or not, would be in any of our situations that we need to be serious about the sin in our lives. And so if there's a serious sin issue that is causing us to need attention and, and, and specific focus and care from others that's eliminating our ability to do something else in the, in the church, we need, to, we need to work on the sin issue. So... Um, I don't think that, there, that, that our lack of ability to do certain things in the church, provided we're connected to the body and we're working on heart issues as a struggling, striving, wrestling believer, I don't think we should have heartburn about that. Other questions? John.
I would, for the sake of my response, I'm gonna take it out of the extreme category where somehow the doctor can call in some external authority or something because they believe that it's, there's gonna be harm to society if this person is taken off medicine or something. And so I think at the end of the day, even if the doctor would be not necessarily for it and doctors are gonna to have to help me out here, at the end of the day, the patient is, I, I mean, I don't think a doctor can force you in that sense to take medicine. And that gets into a whole other, lot of questions, but the question is simply this, what if your doctor is saying, no, you shouldn't come off this, and the person saying, I wanna come off this, what do you do? And all the circumstances, there's a whole host of them, it depends on what the issue is, what the doctor's saying, why you can't come off it, all those things. You would wanna be patient and listen to those things. You certainly wouldn't wanna tell somebody, ah, blow them off, their worldview's bad. But I don't know how long that goes. There's just, it, I mean, at the end of the day, I can't answer it, black or white. It's gotta be, a, it's a wisdom thing. Um, if you take it out of the category of somebody saying, no, you're gonna be on this by order of law because I believe you're gonna harm someone or something like that, and you submit to authorities. But it just would take patience and kindness. Be willing to walk with somebody through that difficulty, even if it meant walking with them and having interaction with their doctor. I mean, be an advocate. But at the end of the day, I don't think we should distrust automatically out of hand the medical community in that situation. You weren't saying that, my counsel would be, don't just automatically distrust that. There may be good reasons, very serious reasons. Yes, so what Chris was saying, so add that as like an equal and necessary add-on to the sentence. Don't ever tell somebody to stop taking their medicine. Tell them to listen to their doctor and their doctor's prescribed order for how they may come off of the medicine. So yeah, Chris makes a good point. Bad things can happen if you make a decision against your doctor's desires with regard to coming off the medicine. Other questions? Oh, yep, one more, kind of. Sure. Yeah. Any comments there? Such a simple issue, Gary. He brought it up five minutes left. No, I mean, the grid, the interpretive grid of Scripture, what is expected of us? Authority and submission there, too, is a big part of that factor. But without knowing all the circumstances, et cetera, it, it would be really hard to know from this perspective how you would handle that exact situation. But submission to authority is important. It's an important part of God's word. It's an important part of our Christian life. So that would weigh in some way, shape, or form. But I know so little about the cases that that could work itself out in. I'm a, a, a woefully inadequate counselor on that one. I would have to do a lot of listening, understanding, and involved being involved so it is 936 is there one more question oh there is okay it's okay yes <laughs> uh, yeah the question is this it is that there's heartache that is born when you bear one another's burdens and so the question was how do how do elders do that who know more burdens than than others maybe in the church and the answer is by God's grace and it's part of the work of ministry for any elder in shepherding the flock to to do that and by God's grace by Christ's strength that's all there's not a magic 
no magic answer, I promise. I think if you asked any of the men that elder this church, they would all, they've borne some heavy burdens. They would say, God's grace. All right, well, let me close our time in prayer and then we'll have 23 minutes until worship service.